You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. A reading from God's Word, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Thanks, Mr. Cricklow. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with us this morning. Um, this This is a dollar bill. If you look under your seats, um, there's nothing under your seats. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> this is a dollar bill, and, and it's worth one dollar, all right? Um, and, and that's true. That, that's four quarters or ten dimes or 20 nickels or 100 pennies. This is worth one dollar U.S. currency. Um, and that's true only because we have agreed that it's true. And, and at one point, most of you probably know that, that this $1 was backed by a portion of gold. And you could, you know, technically you could exchange this piece of paper for something real, like, like a, a piece of gold. Now that gold that they would give you was worth $1. And that's only true because we believed that that gold was worth $1. And so, now while gold has maintain its worth for a long, long time, we only find value in it because we agree that it is valuable. <clears throat> Morality is, is treated very similarly. Um, it, it is right and, and it is wrong because we agree that it is so. Um, morality literally means the, the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad. Uh, right and wrong are good and bad behavior. But there is a problem with that. See, see everyone uh, agrees on right and wrong, right? No, no they don't. Not, not everyone agrees on what is right and not everyone agrees on what is wrong. And we, we all live by a different kind of code of ethics, a different moral code. And to be clear, everyone does. Everyone does live by a code of ethics or, or a, a moral code, if you will. And you could look at like the mafia and some might say, oh, that's, and, and if you're among us today, no disrespect, right? But you might say of the mafia, like, oh gosh, they would do anything, but, but they have a, a very specific code of ethics that they live by. And you might say, well, gosh, in, in war, like, it's just anything goes. But, but that's not true because you know that there are rules of engagement, rules of war. And, and certainly some of those rules were probably made to be broken by one party or the other. 
But the reality is that we all have this kind of union in our every action and our every judgment. And even if there was agreement, even if there was consensus, um, consensus isn't the author of morality. Consensus isn't the author of what is good and bad, of what is right and wrong. And just because many agree on something, it, it doesn't make it so. And, and in light of this, many have agreed with, with some of the worst atrocities in the history of humanity. And that doesn't mean that, that those things are then just okay because everyone thought it was okay. Left on our own, we become, as the Bible says, a law unto ourselves. That, that's what we do, each living how we live because we think it's best. And, and if we can agree upon anything in life right now, it would probably be that there is no moral consensus. Everyone is, is quick to, to pop off and to cancel and to assign and assume, but moral agreement we have not. So that makes for things that are just incredibly unstable. And if you find yourself maybe older or, or maybe younger in a place that just feels kind of like unsafe because we can't agree on what's good and what's bad, things are shifting and things are chaotic and, and unsafe and there are too many voices and there, there are not enough voices and there's no satisfaction in, in pleasing the world and, and I've said many, many times of leaders, and every day it's somebody else falling from whatever. And it's just like, gosh, saying things out loud in this climate is really tough. Because you just don't know what's right and what's wrong. And, and so there's this sliding scale throughout history, and it, and it, 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 it swerves far right and far left and, and all over the place. And it's this sliding scale that allows God to be rejected and it's this scale that allows God's people and, and modern day Christians to be villainized in the name of what is right and good. And it's this same, same sliding scale that allows unborn babies to be murdered in the name of comfort and convenience. And it's this same sliding scale that, that allows us to share our uh, streaming passwords for Disney Plus with one another. Because we say things like, well, I mean, they have so much money. Okay. They, they have a lot of money. It's, it's the same thing that says you can drive 65 in a 60, but you can't drive 67 in a 60 because you have to draw the line somewhere. It's, it's political disagreement, and it's, and it's voter fraud, and it's cheating at board games, which adults do because, gosh, we just all love to win. I get it, right? So within each of us, there is a driving compass that determines what's okay and where to draw the lines and, and what lines we're willing to cross. And maybe you've heard somebody say something at work or in some other context where they say, ah, we got to do da 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 and somebody would say, well, who said? Dude, <laughs> that is a really great question. Because when we say something like that, who, who said? Then what we're saying is like, it, it's similar to uh, if you see a, a kid acting up in public and maybe somebody would come alongside them or even a teacher in, in the classroom and, and, you know, to the child, hey, don't do that. Like, you're not my mom. You're not my dad. That's true. And what you're doing is still wrong, right? 
But, but, but that, that kid or that coworker that says, who said it, it's all the same thing, it's, it's rebellion and it's mistrust of authority and it runs deep within each of us and we search for that definitive authority and often we search to be that definitive authority. And, and for every moment in life, we are actually answering right and wrong. Everything that we do, we're actually answering, whether we're mindful of it or not, who said. And the answer is, well, I, I said, and we are uh, accountable to no one, derived from nothing by mere chance over billions of years. Or there is a God who creates and determines how humanity and how creation is best, one that determines what is good. And I know it's not true for everyone in this room, but, but for many in this room, we have come to be, behold a, a, a triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, one God over all, Lord of all creation. And for us, we see His divine authority. We see that, that in His Word, He said... That's, that's who said, uh, revealed by his law, and then later in the work, in the life, in the person of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. So we find ourselves in, in this, the second book, God and his people, and it's, and it's one of rescue, and God rescues his people. And then we see uh, in the second part of this exodus that we're kind of just dipping our toes into now, we find ourselves in a place where, where God has created, and he has sustained, and he has rescued his people, and he begins to establish them, uh, and he begins to establish with them the definitive right and wrong of what it means to be his people under his law. Right? There, there is a, a moral code, right? And, and so we get to peer into what that is. He went to great lengths to get the team together. And now he's like revealing the playbook for his community. Only football reference of the day. Right? <laughs> he's showing what life together looks like. And last week we saw God and Moses kind of share a moment, and, and, and God invited Moses up. Uh, at the top of Mount Sinai, and, and he interacts between God and, and his people. And today, he begins laying out the terms of what that means to be God's covenant community. And, and today, we get to something that no matter where this finds you, if you've ever gathered with a church before, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. And today, we get to talk about a couple of those, right? Um, last week, we said it looked like this. God said to his people, do you trust me? And they said, Lord, we trust you. And what he's saying today is this is what that trust looks like. If you trust me, this is what it looks like for you to walk with me and for you to be mine as I am yours. And, and kind of the burden of this just six verses today is this. There is one God. He alone saves, speaks, and satisfies. The Ten Commandments. The gold standard for morality, right? People love these things and people hate these things, but they cannot deny any modern and largely historical culture that these things have 
have, have uh, incredible influence and value. And, and some Christians even pitch fits and, and engage in legal battles to have them or to keep them. Uh, these, these ten commands written on stone in, in local courthouses as if a list of rules has ever stopped anyone from doing anything literally ever. And to be fair, God's people love them some rules. Right? God's people love them some law. And today in Exodus, we begin to see God unfold his heart of flesh through tablets of stone. And so kind of some background. We have a month, a couple months to walk through this. And so we'll hit on some more. But kind of some background around the Ten Commandments. The Jews would refer them to them as the ten words, or the, literally the word is, is sayings or speeches or words. And so um, we say like the ten commandments, and we want to see like the tablets, and, and we want to see uh, all the, it, it's not quite so clear like that in the scripture. And so these are, are the ten words, and, and depending on your spiritual roots, there might be nine, and one and two might be one, or nine and ten might be nine, and, and all this stuff. And so uh, I, I say all that to say, gosh, um, let's not get hung up on the Ten Commandments, since the Bible never really calls them that, like that. But we, we, we kind of get from culture that, that these are God's Word written in stone to God's people. And, and the arrangement, these are two tablets of the law, so there are some groupings, and, and there are several ways to break these things down, but, but the, the most obvious is this, that the first four, they relate to, to how we love God. Like, our six relate to how we love people, how God's people are to love one another, and so that's kind of the horizontal of it. And, and this is the groundwork for what would become... Many years later, as Jesus sets things up and, and someone asks him, Teacher, what's, what's the most important of all the rules? And Jesus says, Gosh, that, that you love the Lord and that you love your neighbor. Like, and, and if you do that, then all... Right? And, and so this is him telling us what that is to love God and to love neighbor because they just don't know. They don't know what that looks like. And so he's establishing a relationship and he begins to tell them what that looks like. And, and so we can assume that this was written in the papyrus font, all right? But we don't know what font it was and we don't know what the breakdowns were. But, but what we know is that, that God's telling his people how to love him and how to love their neighbor. And, and, and we know that the law isn't undone later on when Jesus comes. It's easy for us to think that, that the law was just abolished. But we learn time and time again that the law was not abolished, it was fulfilled. And so, again, we will, we will have plenty of time to tease this out over the next few months. But as it relates to God's law, and this is the beginning of it, there are many, 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 many more laws that follow these, these ten. But, but as it teases out, there are uh, civil laws, and those are, are dietary and... and um, dealing with restitution and, and some other things like that. And then you have ceremonial laws, and those were kind of like the customs for the Jews, for God's people, animal sacrifices, and all kinds of other things in there. And, and those things were, they were satisfied in Jesus. But then we have this moral law, 
And, and this is the Ten Commandments is it's God's moral law. It's, it's the Ten Commandments and many more that show us what justice looks like, what God's nature on display looks like. Those are things that are fulfilled in Jesus as the foundation of love. So, Exodus 20, I'm going to start reading verses 1 and 2. And God spoke, God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's the setup. And then we see as he begins to define what it looks like to be in relationship with him. Our relationship with God alone is first exclusive. Right? This is point one. And if you have a weekly, all this stuff is kind of spelled out in there so you can check that out. But our relationship with God alone is exclusive. And then you have uh, largely deemed the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So there is, there is one voice rightfully called God, and, and it's he who speaks definitive authority for how we live life. This first commandment, uh, it does away with two ditches. It does away with atheism, which is the belief that there is no God. And if there is one God and this is him, then that's, that's not an option. And it does away with, with polytheism. And, and pantheism, and, and that was the, the culture. And so God is cutting against the grain, and he's establishing a monotheistic relationship. One God, him and his people. And, and we see in this, it also addresses that, that there's not only one true God and there are no others, but it addresses the deep problem of the human heart, and that is idolatry. That we're constantly putting things in place that replace God as that one God. This is precisely what God has been establishing through his rescue, that, that he alone is God. So this literally kind of teases out like this. There shall not be to you other gods before my face. There shall not be to you other gods before my face. Face. And so he says, I am the Lord, which points back to creation. If he is, I am, that's what he said his name is. He is that he is, do not exist. And so if he created us, then he is the Lord over us. And then, then secondly, he has rescued. He reminds of the rescue out of Egypt. And, and if you've been tracking with us, you know. But, but if you haven't, dude, jump into Exodus. I won't call you dude anymore today, right? Sorry. Uh, my street slang is just coming out of me, right? Um, it, jump into Exodus and just read the story of God's rescue of his people. And what we see is he does things. Uh, he goes out of his way to make the false gods of Egypt look like absolute fools. And, and he puts plagues against them in, in the ways that they thought they had control as they have the, the God over the, 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 the water. And he turns it to blood and, and they have the God of the, the frogs represented by flog, uh, frogs and, and life and, and flies and all these things. And he uses those things and he turns it against him. He makes them look like fools. And so we've committed ourselves in a relationship and at face value this seems pretty Pretty simple because, because it is. He says, rid, rid your life of any other God because there is none apart 
from me. Analogies, uh, they, they always only go so far, but imagine, imagine a husband and a wife, and, and they go on their honeymoon, and they come back, and, and they go into their, their new apartment, and he probably carries her across the threshold of the door, and he probably hits her head on the door because he has to go like, right. Anyway, um, and so imagine them coming in, and, and they just got married, and they committed their lives to one another, and he looks around, and he's like, wow, some of their stuff is there, uh, and he sees pictures of his new wife with, with old lovers, sees picture of his wife with, with some other man that he doesn't know, and he looks on the table and he sees some movie tickets, and she says, oh, yeah, 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 I was me and the other guy hanging out at what the calendar looks like, and she's telling him of dates that she has set up with other dudes. That, that's, that's not okay. And you might say, well, this is, isn't this an illustration for one of the other commandments? And, and maybe it is, right? But, but the apartment and the marriage analogy, it conveys the point that, that at the heart of this, he is ours and we are his exclusively. We are re- in relationship with him and, and it is exclusive. There are no other gods. That is the reality, whether you live that way or not. There are no other gods. And, and then... The, the danger or the challenge is that you can't live as if there are. And so you might be finding yourself like, whew, I'm, I'm good because, you know, I, I chose Christian on my profile and I've never been to a mosque to worship. While, while those realities may have, have been really difficult, for the original hearers that were living in a world that did not feel like their own, where, where false gods were everywhere, this, this is much further reaching than, than going to, to pagan temples. All of this is a matter of the heart. And so culturally, we see nods to false gods all the time. Like, all the time. Like when we see Jimi Hendrix doing a raging guitar solo, we say, gosh, this is a guitar God. And we see movies and, and, and we're not worthy. People bowing down to others. And we see things like uh, today you'll probably hear, uh, uh, well, the football gods were da da da. And you just see it all the time. And, and in like real ways, you see people living as if karma is some mastermind creator and sustainer of all that is, the, the ultimate equalizer. Just you wait. Karma will have her way with you. We, we hear songs like, uh, I, I, could, I could literally name a hundred, but, but, but you're holy, holy, holy. I'm high on loving you. And, and you're so holy, 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 holy. I'm high on loving you. You're the healing hands where it used to hurt. You're my saving grace. You're my kind of church. You're holy. And like, we, we get it. And look, if you're singing that song in your car, it doesn't mean that you're an idolater. <laughs> but the point is clear. That, that our culture isn't subtle, but, but blatantly, 
proudly living in light of false gods. The idea that God has been replaced with with one who has greater influence from, from our heart to our hand that we would say, that we would give ourselves to someone and, and say, you are the reason why I exist. That's dangerous. No relationship in this life can satisfy your deepest needs like only God can. The God who saves and the God who, who speaks with divine authority and the God who satisfies. Our hearts are engaged in a battle of allegiance above all And so the question is, who or what am I divided for? I can't answer that for you, but we get to ask the question. If God is God and we are His, then we get to live lives of worship to Him alone. So where is my worship divided? Or where is my heart divided? What competes for the affection of my heart? Or what influences uh, what I think And how I live above all. There is one God and he alone saves and speaks and satisfies. And so for reflection, uh, if you lost everything, and I mean everything, the things that are most dear to you, family, the idea of family, your reputation, all your fortune, all the your life itself. If you lost all of those things and you had God alone, Would that be enough? Because that's what this is telling us, that that our relationship with him gets to look like. It is a call for complete exclusivity. If we could keep this, then all the other laws would follow. If we got this right, um, then, then all... I heard somebody this week, they said it's like a, a, a mathematical equation. And, and let's say you have a, a whole page worth of stuff that you're writing and you're solving for three variables, right? And so it's a really long equation. And if in the first line your arithmetic is off by one, everything else is off. If, if we get all the things right and we don't steal and we don't kill and we don't do all the things, but we miss this, everything else is off. Our relationship with God alone is exclusive. And the second thing is this. Our relationship with God alone is best. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under you, uh, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. If we understand what God is communicating, then this is not a a list of rules, but it is the reflection of God's nature, his character, his heart, of who he is. And if, and if we get that uh, against the grain of false gods and, 
and silent, unsatisfying saviors, God sets his people up to live best. And, and I'm, not, I'm not talking best life now, hashtag blessed, because I have all the money and all the things. That's not what God is inviting his people into. He's saying, if I am number one, then you are best. So, so at the center, uh, just as we were made to flourish, if, if God is at the center, then, then we are living in a way that, that is best for us and best for humanity. Him as our divine authority, defining what is good, shaping us for good in every way. And when we don't, imagine the earth telling the sun that, that today you're going to revolve around me. Or imagine the moon saying today to the earth, you're going to revolve around me. That might mess some things up a bit. And it would be audacious for the tiny little earth to tell the sun that. That's what we're doing. In fact, it would be like a speck of moon dust, us telling the sun to revolve around it. That, that, that would mess things up, and it, and it doesn't make any sense. The big picture is, is that God created everything. He established, it, he established it in the beginning, and it was good. And sin broke that. And it unleashed fracture on all of creation. And, and on all of our relationships with, with God and man, with, with man and woman, and, and with all of creation. And this is at the beginning of God coming together to reestablish what is good. And it would be a long time coming before we see the fullness of that in Jesus. But this, literally, Exodus 20 is the beginning of him reestablishing what is good. God first is the foundation of creation at its best. So one commentator says the second command warns us against having the wrong object of worship and against worshiping the wrong way. Carved images were man-made objects for worship. These idols have no comparison to the true God. They are impersonal and powerless. They are deaf, dumb, and they are dead. Habakkuk, chapter 2, is a voice of reason that when you think about this, you're like, but how, how can that be? How can I worship something that I make? How is that a thing? And, and this is what he says in 2, uh, 18 and 19. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image. A teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. It's so foolish, so silly, that we would worship something less than God. 
And what this means is, real simply, is that, that idols make terrible gods. Idols make terrible gods. They aren't fit to worship. And they aren't fit to serve as intermediates between us and true God worship. They come in all shapes and all sizes. And as we've heard from the reformers of, of old, that our hearts manufacture idols like a, like a modern uh, factory. And they, they set them aside in, in the warehouse of our hearts, just waiting to be distracted from the true worship of the one true living God. We sing the song, Our Hearts Are Prone to Wander. We drift. And so please, as you hear these words, don't puff yourself up and say, oh, not me. Man, you are best when you understand that your heart, because of sin's grip, is prone to wander. And it's prone to find all sorts of imposters. We, we read that we, create, uh, that, we, that we trade the creator for the created. And, and it seems like on every page of this book and in, in the life that we see, we live, God's people live to disobey and to dethrone. And, and if you think for a minute that boldly embracing a list of rules, put God first and, and don't worship mute objects that you make with your own hands. If you think that a list of rules is going to stop you, then you don't know the story of God and his people, and you're probably not very in tune with your own heart. Idolatry sells true worship short. God says that, that we are made in his image. And idolatry sets sad imposters of non-existent gods on the throne of our heart and our life. And so when we put this first command and the second together, then, then what are these things? Well, it could be the idea of family, and it could be uh, the idea, it could be your spouse, it could be safety and comfort that, that you live to please more than anything else. It could be certainly a political party or your future plans or you just striving to please everyone all the time. And what we find out about any of those things and any list of, of any other thing that you would put on that, that those things will be crushed by the weight, and they will crush you if that's what you build your life upon. There's this beautiful picture of how this shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And the, the, later on, these ten tablets, along with some manna that they put in a, a, a jar, and Aaron's staff, it became part of this chest that we call the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it and it's kind of got a little bit of clout with it in the Old Testament, right? Some, some authority with it. And the Philistines, they take it and they, they steal it. And they put it what seems like in a temple with, with this god that they worship. His name is, uh, it looks like dragon. Um, it's, it's Dagon, all right? And so they put it there and, and there is a, a statue of this guy, Dagon, um, and and the next day, I think the janitor's in there sweeping. There's not really, that's not what happened. But they, they, find, they find the image of Dagon laid down, bowing down to the ark. 
and they think, that was weird. Like, let's put him, let's put our God back in place. And they put him back in place, and the next day they come in, and they find Dagon not only bowing down to the ark, but his head was broken off and his arms were broken off. And you know what they said? They said, get that thing out of here. (laughs) Give it back to him. We don't want it. Man, let us not hinge our joy, our future, our, our momentary satisfaction, even our definition of good and bad or, or our hope or, or even our life on dead things or created things. Because they can't bear the weight that only God can. We see uh, him say, no other gods before me. No, no carved images because I'm jealous. And we look at that and we say, oh gosh, he seems a bit controlling. Because in our broken relationships, jealousy, although it might be a bit noble on the front end, can get out of hand really quickly. But, but God is not like us in his relationship with us. And we see throughout the, the, the Bible and certainly in the New Testament, our relationship of a bride and a groom. And, and he's the groom in the church. God's people are, are the bride. And what we see in that is that it really is about a relationship. It's, it's, not just, it's, it's not just God teaching a class and saying, these are the classroom rules. It's not just law enforcement It's, it's not that there is one God above many others. He is the only God. And this word jealousy is, is really the word zeal or zealous. And, and, and it's also the word passion. And what we learn is that, that God is passionate for his people. He's passionately loving us in a way that shows us what's best. And what's best is, is, is him. God will oppose those countless that, that hate him. That, that he made for himself those who live as worship to false and created gods. And for those countless who keep his commands and walk with him, he will show steadfast love, perfect, endure. Like, fact check this, but I read this week that this is the first time that, that it talks about God loving his people. That, that all of this has been about God and his love for us. And so human jealousy is directed towards self. God's jealousy is, is passion directed towards us. God doesn't want his people whom he rescued and, and whom he would later die for to give themselves to anything that can't love them like He can. And later on we see this revealed. And this actually makes sense. That that there was no image of God. Because they didn't know what he looked like. They had heard him. But they didn't know what he looked like. And so you can imagine a foreign land coming in and and conquering God's people and saying, "Where, where are all your gods? As if God was a piece of gold or silver. That would be strange to the foreign 
uh, conquering nation. They, they'd heard him to this point, but they haven't seen him. There, there's no image to make. In the New Testament, it, it shows us the fullness of this. In the New Testament, we see God is revealed. We, in fact, see the exact image of God in the incarnation when Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, comes down and he puts on flesh and he becomes a man. And, and practically, we see depictions of Jesus throughout history. And because I didn't really understand this command, I always see Jesus like on stained glass and I think, oh gosh, do you not even know the Bible? That's what I think. But, but I think that's not breaking the commandment, but it's expressing its fullness, and it's, and it's validating the Old Testament prohibition. Remember, all this is in the context of relationship and worship, and how we get to properly worship the one true God. It's not a prohibition of art. And so there are some sects of churches that say, ah, no, no, no crosses in the building, and, and all these things because they look at these things. And you might say, ah, how dare you wear that cross on your necklace or, or a crucifix or, or whatever. And, and if you worship that thing, and if you're like getting ready to shoot free throws, and you grab that as if it's going to like make you make that bucket, that, that you shouldn't do that. But if you're letting people know whose team you're on, I think that's okay. And, and if you're hardcore against someone like that, then make sure you don't have like a, a manger in your yard or in your house at Christmas time because it's just the same thing. So, the, so, so we get to understand not as a, a law, not as, as the rule, but, but why is God telling us so, so that we might worship him properly, Lord of all. Our relationship with God alone is exclusive. It's, it's best and it is sure. Our relationship with God is exclusive, it's best, and it is sure. In about 10 minutes, these people, God's people, whom he rescued, showed up in miraculous ways. They're going to take up an offering, and they're going to collect all the jewelry in the house, and they're going to burn it down, and they're going to make a golden cat. To talk about that when we get there in this book. In, in no time flat, after they've seen God, they will bow down and literally worship a golden calf that they make with their own hands. And the reality is, when you leave this place today, when you get up and do what you do tomorrow, your heart will be drawn to worship lesser gods. If left to our faithfulness to keep the course, we are sunk and God will visit our iniquity indeed. But in Christ, he becomes the one who loves the Father and keeps the commands without blemish. And he is God and he puts God alone above all other, laying down his own life for the lives of many. So what we get to do is we get to put the full hope of our covenant relationship with God in the, in the faithfulness of Jesus to us. Look, that is the gospel. That is good 
news. If we get this right, then our relationship with all of the other things that we are drawn to worship, all of the other things in creation, our relationship with all of those things are actually magnified. They're not made lesser. But, but our relationship with other people and other things, it, it's actually magnified when we get this right, that we get to live in light of other things properly. When we set creation in its rightful place, it doesn't bear the weight that only God can bear. When we set creation in its rightful place, then all things are not a distraction from God worship, but all of the things that we have in this life actually help us glorify and worship God with all that we have and all that we are. And today, what we get to do is, is we get to do the sorting of our heart. So the question is, is God alone on the throne of your life? Anything that you do, we get to say, well, who said? And if God said, we get to say, well, what did he say? And we get to sift. And we get to know him. And we get to delight in walking with him as our savior, as, as a voice from a God who speaks and as our satisfaction. And when we fail to live that out like we will, it is Christ alone who brings us once again and, and once for all time back to our one true God who, keeps, who, who heaps steadfast love upon us as we trust in Christ alone to love God and keep his commands. The band can come up. There is one God, and he alone saves, speaks, and satisfies. We get to respond. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and you can sing worship to this one true God. You can pray where you are. If you'd like to pray over there, there's a prayer bench. There will be some people by that red tree, some people by that red tree that would love to pray with you. And if you're in Christ, you've come to the point where you trust him, whether you're a part of this church or another, if, if, if you are his and he is yours, we get to take communion. We get to come up here and, and take uh, of the, the juice and the bread that represents the blood that was spilled for us and his body that was broken for us. And as we do that, we get to remember that our life in him is built on Christ's work and we get to declare that to ourselves and to others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that, that you want what's best for us. And what's best for us is when we walk with you. And thank you that you didn't just tell us vaguely to walk with you, but you began, even in this chapter of, of Exodus, you began to show us what it looks like to walk with you and to walk in your ways. Would, would you let us be a people that do that? The trust in you to be satisfied above anything that this life can offer by the power of the Spirit, by the work of the Son, to the glory of you, our Father, in Jesus' name.